0: What's up, everybody? This is Micah Ness, and you're listening to Silverline Behind the Frame, episode number 24. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different. Instead of just interviewing someone else and talking about behind the frame of their business or life or passions, what we're going to dive into is a little bit more behind the frame on some of the projects that we've been working on here at Silverline. One of the large clients that we've been working with now for several years is Prime Revolution. And Prime Revolution is a TV show on the Sportsman Channel. And what we do is we produce 13 episodes for their TV show. And those air every year, the first and second quarter, starting in January all the way through June. And so we've already wrapped up the season four. Um, earlier this year. And now we've actually started filming, or we actually started filming season five before we even finished season four. So last year we went to several different places from Texas for AWDAD hunting. We went to Nevada multiple times for different deer and antelope hunts. We were in Utah hunting antelope, elk, and deer, and went to our annual place in uh, Canada that the guys from Prime Revolution go to almost every year uh, for Northern Pike. So I end up going to a lot of really cool places. And now that the hunting season is really kicking into gear, I'm actually heading down to meet up with Clint Capurro and his son, Connor. They're both uh, show host and co-host for the TV show, meeting up with them down in Ely, Nevada for the first main hunt for this hunting season. But like I said, we actually did a couple of trips already uh, earlier this year. We went to Canada for a muskox hunt, and we were also in uh, Africa for a well, lots of different animals hunts. So we were in South Africa with Connor, uh, with his dad, Clint, and the whole family. Um, um, they were just missing one of the one of the daughters didn't make it along, but Michelle, Clint's wife, and their daughter Ashley and Connor. And the guys were hunting with bow and the ladies were hunting with rifle. And we were able to harvest uh, several really amazing animals there. That was my first experience with Africa and also several of their first experiences as well. And it was just really incredible. So we've go to a lot of these different places and we've been able to, now that we've done so many different episodes, I mean, we've gone two seasons now, so 13 episodes each year. Each one's average is about 23 minutes, uh, which ends up being a full half hour episode once you add in commercial breaks and all the announcements from the Sportsman channel and all the guidelines that they have to follow for putting it on TV. And so we've been able to produce all of these over the past couple of years and wanted to dive in a little bit about some of the really interesting and kind of the nuances of the different uh, trips. And starting with the one that we went to. Uh, muskox which was the first one we filmed for season five and this hunt was really unique in the fact that we were going to the far almost the furthest north you can go in Canada we actually were off the mainland we landed on one of the islands on the northernmost part of Canada and we were in the Nunavut territory and it's way up there we were going up there in March which is still very, very cold. All the sea ice was completely frozen solid. We actually traveled over the sea ice to get to the location that we were gonna be hunting in. So we had to ride around in snowmobiles. But before we even got there, there were several different flights that it took just to arrive there. We And I don't remember all of the specific towns that we went through, but there was lots. I mean, I think we had at least four or five different stops between the main commercial airlines down to the smaller, more local jets that we flew into these different uh, small native villages and we'd get off the plane. it was sub-zero temperatures outside get go back into the small what you would call a terminal which is literally just a one room inside of this airport and wait for them to load up more things into the plane, possibly switch over planes, get other people and head on to there. So we ended up landing all the way north and I'll have to look up the name again. It escapes me at the moment, but I'll think of it. But we basically landed in this very small town. And from there, we were picked up by the outfitter. And we were able to stay in this uh, hotel uh, that is kind of the base of operations for his uh, operation. And uh, it was just, it was really incredible. This is uh, Canadian uh, North Outfitters. And our the hospitality is really good you know, getting us ready. He had all of the really extreme cold weather gear. And that's one of the tricky parts about, you know, hunting in extreme places is not just the clothing that you have to wear to survive this type of, of temperature and extremes, but also the type of gear that you need to have in order to allow the camera gear to work also in that same lower temperature. So there were several different things that I had uh, incorporated into this hunt to be able to film it and I've actually filmed a uh, muskox hunt before uh, this was over in Alaska on uh, the Nunavik island and this is a there was a draw hunt two friends of mine uh, John and Casey uh, they live in Alaska the first time they put in for this hunt they drew this this uh, muskox hunt it was very limited I think there's something like 12 or 15 tags every year out of the whole state of Alaska, even not resident and non-resident. And so we went there, filmed that. One, um, Casey ended up shooting his muskox with a bow. John shot his with a rifle. And that was kind of a first little intro into filming in extreme cold weather temperatures. So that was very similar to what we experienced on this trip. And so I kind of knew what to expect going into it a little bit. Um, trying to prepare you know the gear and and a lot of the stuff you know the cameras can actually function okay as long as you a try to keep them you know out of the snow without getting moisture moisture is the worst killer for for cameras and equipment, and you have snow so it 's not necessarily always wet moisture sometimes it 's cold moisture you know lens freezing, getting fog on the front of the lens so it 's always a challenge and one of the big things is is you 're going unless you 're staying in a little tent. That would stay the same temperatures outside, your body heat, and even the stoves and everything that would keep our our little cabins and places we were at warm. It's a lot colder outside. And so, your internal temperature of the camera, and more specifically, the lens, since it's a sealed uh, body on that lens, is it stays a certain temperature. And if you change the temperature very rapidly, then you can form condensation. In the lens, you get fog in there, and don't ask me what the technicalities of why that is. Uh, Basically, the dew point is reached, and because you have this air in there, then it condenses on the outside, and there's a lot of things, but basically it fogs up. And you really only experience it when you're going from the, the extreme cold weather into the warmer temperature. Now, if you go in the opposite direction, where you're inside and it's warm and you go out and it's cold, um, because it's it 's basically cooling down rapidly rather than trying to warm up too rapidly, um, you actually don 't have to worry about getting the fog building up when you go outside and so that was really nice as long as you you know take your time going you know from there, your batteries are warmed up, those stay good, but then you move out into the cold weather and then But the difficult part is when you come back inside after being out in the cold. There is, there is a way that you can help to eliminate that is basically using a ziplock bag or another type of bag that would seal airtight and thin enough that it will actually allow the camera to change temperature slowly rather than rapidly. So you would put the camera and the lens or basically everything all together inside this bag. You'd seal it up while you're outside. So you're basically sealing this, this uh, chamber I guess you would call it of temperature inside this bag and then you bring it inside and now it basically is creating this this ambient space between the inside warmer temperature and what the lens is and what it does is it slows down that transition and it allows the moisture to naturally kind of condense on the inside of the bag rather than on the inside of the lens because once you get fog on in the inside of the lens it will go away over time, but it does take some time. And you basically have to try to expose the back of the lens to the temperature and kind of open it up and try to wipe it off. But even if you wipe off the surface condensation, you still have that layer and the the temperature of the glass is actually different. And so that's one tip that I was able to use in order to uh, allow the camera, as long as you're Coming in for a significant period of time. If I wasn't and I'm just going back and forth and I didn't have to film inside the cabin, then I would actually leave my camera bag with the cameras in it outside rather than bringing it indoors. As long as it was sealed, I'd put a waterproof cover over the backpack so that me blowing snow would not get inside and make the whole camera wet. And then, unless I was going to leave it over there for a significant period of time and I needed to film inside, which sometimes you do, so then. Uh, there were other times when I would just basically keep one of the cameras inside to film inside and use the other one outside. But then when you have to go out and you're filming all day and you have both cameras out, then you kind of have to, basically you can use this bag method to bring the temperature back to normal. And so that was, and the other thing you can also do is you can take the moisture absorber little packets. And you usually get these in, in products when you buy them, they're in the box, they help to just absorb any extra moisture. You can actually buy them in larger quantities from camera stores and they call them like moisture munchers or basically it's just these little uh, moisture absorption packs and you collect them from your equipment. And then if you throw a couple of those in the bag, when you put your camera in there, when the moisture comes out and condenses on the bag, then those help to soak up more of that moisture. So so that's a really good way to, to transition from, again, the cold to the warm. You don't have to worry about it when you go from the warm to the cold, but occasionally you can get some, uh, still some surface condensation, but you can usually be able to wipe that off. So, um, and once you're outside, now the temperature is very cold. We were down to probably minus 15, minus 20 degrees or so. And some of the cameras can, I never had one completely not function. But it would definitely slow down. So if you're trying to shoot at a faster shutter speed with photo- with photos, and because let's say one of the few, if only, downfalls of mirrorless that I can see from from our use cases is when you are you don't have a visual uh, eyepiece that is looking through what the camera sees. Now, a normal DSLR has a mirror, and so you're actually looking through the the viewfinder, and you're actually looking. It's directing basically your view right through the lens until it clicks black where the mirror goes away and it takes the picture and then the mirror comes back. So um, so because of that, you don't have the instant review of looking in the eyepiece. And that's why I really like the mirrorless cameras because you can take your picture and you can review the photo right with your eyes still in the eyepiece and you don't have to go down and do what they call chimping where you have to look at the back of the frame of the camera. You can keep right on your uh, subject. You can look at the picture right there. And keep right on shooting. So that's a real benefit of having a mirrorless camera. Now, when you're out in the cold weather, that's one of the few times that I find that uh, it's more of a downfall because everything is digital. It's basically your eyepiece is not an actual physical eyepiece looking out, it's a digital uh, image that it's portraying up for your eye as well as the back rear LCD screen. It's literally a, a small LCD screen that's being projected in there. And so, because of that, you have these these electronic parts that have to, you know, the, the the quartz or the things that are lighting up basically to show your image on the screen, that can get cold. And sometimes the rear LCD monitor will not work. It will actually shut off. And there's, I'm sure there's a temperature, an operating temperature that it won't go below. But typically because the eyepiece is a little bit smaller and it's not quite as susceptible as the rear LCD screen, usually you can still use your eyepiece. So just knowing that sometimes you might just have to run it in the viewfinder mode rather than your back LCD screen um, because you will see that it will slow down. And if you're using touch, like especially with your phone, touch sensitivity goes way down and it's really affected just those those moving parts in a touch screen, It really makes it affected. So if you have a non-touch screen back LCD, it might actually work a little bit better. I always turn the touch sensitivity or the touch ability off just because so many times I'm shooting with gloves on or I'm shooting and and there's so many different buttons on the back, I'm accidentally clicking the screen when I don't want to. And yes, there's some nice functionality with that with a click to focus. Um, You know, If you have that time and that tactile feature on there, that's nice. But I usually just turn it off because for me, it doesn't actually add anything more. Just I'll accidentally hit something when I don't want to. So um, so that's one thing to to be aware of. Sometimes the camera will slow down. And again, I've even found it to where the actual shutter portion of this applies more so to DC DSLRs, um, it can get stuck. And it can be, you get a little bit of moisture in there, you're switching lenses, sometimes that can get stuck. And I've actually had the shutter get if you're doing mechanical shutter. Now you can do electronic shutter. If you're having a mirrorless camera, and you don't have to worry about that. Um, but for this being an actual mechanical shutter, um, it actually got fr- you know stuck halfway closed. So I had to I literally take the, the lens off, manually push that open, and then just not closing it again using electronic shutter. So some of, those are some of the things with the cameras that, you know, there there are some shortcomings in cold weather for a mirrorless camera, but it's not enough for me to switch back to a DSLR camera when shooting those types of um, places, and the other thing is that this can apply to other hunts as well that I find when there's rain or other moisture that happens is a regular lens cloth it 's made to be soft and it 's a microfiber cloth that allow you to wipe off you know dust and anything that 's on your lens, but it actually won 't absorb water very well and it almost repels it and so when you have a lot of moisture on the lens. Um, You actually need a cloth that is not just a microfiber. Having a small, um, really, really fine cotton cloth will actually absorb the water. And I found there are a couple other lens wipes that they use for binoculars because a lot of times you get moisture on those because you're hunting. Uh, You can actually use those and it does a better job of wiping that off. Now, the other times when you just completely get uh, water on there and you can't get it off with your microfiber cloth, you can also use a, uh, a little air uh, pump, basically, that you squeeze to to push the, the water off of the front of the lens, off the, uh, the front part of it. But then the other thing you can do, and I'll, a lot of times I carry uh, toilet paper in a small, uh, small Ziploc bag, obviously, for for other reasons when you're outside in the outdoors. But I also keep it because you can take some of that and it's a one-time use. You wipe your lens off and it will actually absorb the water and remove that. And you may have to use still the air blower to remove the extra uh, residue that will come off from using tissue paper or toilet paper. So, when you're doing that, again, it's always nice to have a little bit of that. So, if you get stuck with a bunch of water on your lens, and obviously you want to try to avoid getting stuff on there as much as you can, but when you're shooting in adverse conditions like really cold weather or rain, it's stuff like that's just going to happen and you can't avoid it and so uh definitely having a lens hood as well really helps with that because it's it's reducing the amount of open exposure that you can have um to getting things on the front of your lens and so by having a lens hood on there it actually helps from some of the side at all as well as blocking some of the glare from the sun but depending on if you're shooting video sometimes you actually want that glare just to give a nice feel when you're shooting into the sunlight and that kind of thing so I don't always run it but I pretty pretty often I will keep it on there just to a protect the lens if you happen to set it down or it you know it, it falls down and it's on the front it's not going to hit right on the front element of the lens and um and on that note too you know a lot of times if we're in usually dusty or dirty situations I'll I'll try to run a just a UV filter on the front of the lens, just as an extra level of protection. Say you're shooting motocross and, you know, motorcycles or, or or something that's throwing a lot of dirt around and just having an extra protection on the front of that lens. People do that with plexiglass as well. Uh, you know, if you're trying to shoot right into a motorcycle, taking off and throwing a bunch of dirt and sand right at your lens, you don't necessarily want to have that kind of stuff just going right onto your lens. At least if you have a filter, you can take that off. And I have actually had it, which was on another hunt when we did a muskox hunt that this was an older lens and it was a telephoto lens. It was set up on a tripod. The tripod was not super heavy duty. I should have probably had a heavier duty tripod for that setup, but the wind blew a little bit. It was sitting up there. The lens was fully extended. It was a zoom lens and it fell over right onto the lens. It uh, messed up part of the zoom capabilities of that zoom lens, but it also cracked the front. And thankfully, I had a UV filter on there. And so when it landed straight down onto the rocks, it actually broke that UV filter first, rather than going all the way in and breaking the actual lens. So we were able to repair the lens, it worked still, and it wasn't a complete loss. So, you know, you've got to try to minimize any of those types of things so whenever we're filming these types of hunts and in harsh places or even if it's not a harsh place but you're just going through some difficult terrain or rough type of stuff that could mess up your cameras the more you can protect against that the better and so on back on the uh the muskox hunt so when running with these different cameras the other thing that i was running into and what i wish i would have brought rather than now i have a a backpack that I will run for all of our camera gear. And this is an F-stop bag. It's a really great backpack and I love it. Um, but for this application, because we we're going in and out of the, we weren't loading up our backpack and heading out into the tundra. We we're mainly driving around on snowmobiles or snow machines. If you're in Alaska and, um, you ride in the sled and it's designed off of the same type of sled that they would use the, uh, original natives from in that area, they would use these sleds being pulled by sled dogs. And these versions are, are quite big. They can be up to 15, 18, 20 feet long, the runners below. It's made out of very stout wood, but also with runners going side to side and they lash them together with rope and twine so that it'll actually allow the, the wood to flex a little bit. Because if you just bolted it together or nailed it together you go over so much rough terrain that it would just really bang that thing around and it would not stay together. But since they lash it together, it actually gives it all a little bit of flex. It's able to move a little bit and take some of the bumps. I would definitely say it does not take all of the bumps because we rode on those for miles and miles, hours and hours bouncing around on these sleds and it was not, not comfortable even with a bunch of pads and caribou hides and all these things trying to make it a little more comfortable for us. It was still very, very uncomfortable. (laughs) And, uh, but we made it work. We got to where we needed to go. But the other thing, because we were riding around in those things and they're bouncing around so much, I had this backpack, which is padded and it is protected. But when you're continually bouncing around in the sled quite violently, sometimes when you hit some bumps or or drifts in the snow, you may be bouncing over one, two, three feet sometimes, and unfortunately, it didn't happen till the end of the trip after I didn't need it anymore. Um, but I had one of our mirrorless cameras, an A7, uh, or is actually an A9, and it was attached to our 70 to 200 lens, f 2.8 with a doubler, so it basically turns this 200 into a 400. Uh, you do lose some aperture because of that, but It allows you to reach out there and get a little bit closer to whatever you're trying to photograph or film. And uh, unknowingly, it was left in the backpack for our big ride home. It was a long trip back to town. And now if it was just attached to the 7200, I feel like it would have been fine potentially. Um, It's got a very strong metal attachment to go from the camera to the lens. So I think it would have been okay. But Unfortunately, because it had that doubler, you had two more attachment points and this large lens, you know, moving around on the end of this camera body and sitting in this backpack, bouncing around. It hit wrong and actually broke the mount off of the 70 to 200 part of the lens. Thankfully, the doubler was fine. Um, A couple of the screws got a little bit loose, um, but it was able to tighten that all that down. Thankfully, we were able to get a replacement part for that lens. And it was at the end of the trip on the way back to town after I really needed that lens. And so we avoided some some issue in that part. But it's one thing to be careful of is when you are going through so much, you know, moving around and traveling and jostling, make sure that your things are secure. Ideally, in that type of scenario, you'd want to take the lens off of the body for all of that moving because then it would have been fine. You know, it can take some bumps but it added a joint, a movement point like that. It was did not hold together enough. And now you can't always do that. Sometimes you need to be ready to pull out that camera and start shooting right away. So you need to have it all attached and ready to go, which we do a lot. But in this case, unfortunately, you know that, that was not able to be avoided. So got a broken lens, but we were able to get it fixed. So that's another thing is what I could have done to help avoid that was to have a Pelican case now we have a smaller size uh pelican case that we would use. Um and that makes a, a much smaller, you know, item that you can carry around. It keeps your your gear much more protected and much more secure. You can add uh actually velcro straps inside of the pelican case, which you can do also do inside of the backpack, but it still doesn't give that hard surface to protect from jostling and bumping around. And the pelican cases are, you know almost smash-proof, waterproof. I mean, you can go through so many different things that way. And so looking back at it now, I should have had a, a small Pelican case put that things in because I didn't necessarily need the backpack to backpack around where we're going to be driving around most of the time. So anyway, so that was a good, a good thing to learn. And so now we know if we're going through those types of settings, we'll bring a, uh, a Pelican rather than, or just including with a backpack. Now, the trip that I'm heading to now it's going to be a deer hunt we're going to be going for uh bow hunting and even though we will drive around to spot and look for deer uh we're going to be doing a lot of hiking as well once we see the deer and we got to get in close because we're bow hunting so definitely going to have a backpack on this one um keeping all the the camera things readily accessible and um you know going a little bit more into the the nerdy geeky side of things into the the camera accessories and whatnot but um, for those that are interested in how you know how we're able to get these shots and things that might be able to help you if you do want to take a camera and decide to go shoot some winter time, you know, sports or hunting or whatever, there's still some applicable stuff that you can learn and maybe it's just an interesting thing to uh, log away in case you ever need it. So, um, and now there's a few things too on this trip that also apply to a lot of the different trips that we do and some of the other gear that we'll use. And one of those is uh, made by Peak Design. It's uh, called the Capture Plus, and so it's a little clip that mounts onto, it's basically a mounting plate that mounts onto the camera, and this can be modified to match or to be mounted onto a normal tripod head, but it's also designed to specifically mount into this clip that we will attach to our shoulder straps on our backpacks or even on our waist belt, you know, bino harness, those kinds of things, to be able to carry the camera and an extra lens if you wanted to, or mainly it's so that I can carry two cameras out fully accessible, both on my person. And, you know, when you're hiking, you need, you got to be able to grab onto rocks, you got to be able to scale up cliffs and all these different things. So being able to have your hands free when you need them, but also the camera is readily accessible when you need them too. And, you know, you'll miss the shot. If you don't have a camera readily accessible, you can't always have it in your hand. Sometimes you need to put it away, but you need to be able to grab it when you need to. And there's been several times where if I didn't have that camera readily accessible, I would have missed the shot. That animal was right there. We got a quick shot and then they ran off or, you know, this thing happened. And, and so it's always good to, you know, as, uh, as uh, Chase Jarvis would say or others as well, the best camera is the one that you have with you. And even if you have it with you and it's in your backpack and it's not there to grab when you need it, you know, when you're shooting this more gorilla style documentary style video, you know, everything's not all planned out. You don't know when something's going to pop up an animal or something to shoot. So anyway, so on that side, definitely the, the camera bag that I'm carrying can hold a lot of stuff inside it. I'll keep extra lenses, batteries, you know, lens filters, and all the extra accessories that I don't need access to all the time. It's still on me. It's still in the backpack. I can grab it when I need it. But the things that I have outside are the most accessible and important. So I'll have one main camera that is typically set up with audio system for the person that is hunting. I'll have a lapel set up on them and or a lav mic is uh, it's also called. And so this is a smaller mic that is basically capturing all of the the dialogue and things that are being said as we're going along and narrating the day of the hunt. But it also has a shotgun microphone on it as well. So I can basically capture both or switch between one and the other. So if uh, other things are happening that is not on the lapel, or maybe the guide is saying something and we don't have a mic on him, then we can capture those parts. So um, having that camera out and accessible, ready to go, I'm shooting primarily on that one. And then typically I'll have us and that'll have usually a 24 to 70 lens. And then I'll have a wide angle set up uh, in my camera bag when I need it. And when I want to get something more artistic or if I'm hiking behind them, I don't get kind of a wider shot of kind of the uh, going through the brush or shooting up high or holding up, and getting photos, jumping back and forth between the two. Um, but then I'll usually keep a 24 millimeter to 70 millimeter lens on there mostly so that you have a little bit of room to punch in when you need to. And because this hunt that I'm going to be doing now is a bow hunt, you know, the action's happening a lot closer. So when we're shooting longer distances, a lot of times we're using a phone scope. Um, so setting up our phone with a mount and an adapter to be able to shoot through a spotting scope. And it actually captures pretty good quality, you know, as good of the quality as your phone has. And then, but you can just reach out there so much farther than the equivalent of shooting with something like that with a lens would be something like. 800 millimeters plus. And so that can be very difficult to carry on a lens that big. And so usually we're shooting uh, with a phone scope through a spotting scope. And so on this one, I'll be carrying one of those as well so that I have the option to set up those and not only help glassing when I need to, but also to punch in and film the animals as we see them, which is also really helpful for that. And then, um, The other lens or the other camera rather that I'll usually keep two cameras out and accessible one that I'm usually carrying in my hand, but I have the ability to put away if I need to. And then the other one is usually going to be more of a telephoto lens. So especially for bow hunting, where there is going to be some action happening closer, 24-70 is really not going to reach out there far enough to capture the animal close enough unless they're just a really close shot, you know, 10 yards, 15 yards or so. And so I'll have a secondary camera that's usually out and accessible as well, either with the 70 to 200 uh, millimeter lens, or in this case, I'm going to have an uh, adjustable uh, lens on a Nikon camera as a secondary, literally just for punching in closer to animals when they're further away. So then, in the uh, ideal scenario, then I could set up. We have the time to do it. Sometimes things happen quickly, and you just got to pull out the camera and shoot handheld and just go for it because there's the animal. You got to. Got to capture it while you're there. Um, but then you know, when we have the time, I'll set up a tripod, put the longer lens on that, punch in close to the animal, and then I'm using my other main camera, uh, capturing the audio, the things that are happening in that setting, and a little bit wider. So ideally, we're trying to capture all the action as it happens so it's as true to life. And then sometimes if uh you only have time to punch in a close shot on the on the animal then you may have to fill, uh, film a fill-in shot of just, you know, them getting ready or holding their bow up or something like that, just to fill in of, you know, the shots that would have taken place before the actual shoot happened. So, um, you know, you got to be ready for both. So having those two cameras available is always great because you don't always have time to switch lenses. And so, but, you know, sometimes you just have the other camera as a backup. So, if you have that one set up in your backpack, you don't always have to run with two cameras. You can run a lens that has enough variability so you could shoot any type of scenario. But what we found typically those lenses, because they're so big and cumbersome, you sacrifice one type of shot to get the other shot. And it's not always the best of both worlds. So we try to have two setups whenever possible. And even if we have the ability or just having the equipment along, we'll set up a GoPro as well either keeping that super wide mounted on top of the camera or um, just on a little flexible Gobi tripod to be able to set it up right next to the action that's happening really quick and you know to be able to capture that moment as it happens. So typically try to keep that really accessible on the outside of the pack, as well as the tripod to be able to set up with that long lens. And, and that's the same type of setup we had for uh, MuskOx as well. The difficult addition to that was because we had the cold weather to deal with. We had basically thin little gloves inside of our big, heavy-duty down gloves that were very, extremely warm. Never got cold. My fingers were great as long as they stayed inside of that big glove. And so when I wasn't inside that big glove, that's when my hands got really cold. And trying to run a camera, which is a lot of metal and plastic and cold and then you have a tripod that is also usually carbon fiber you know we have some pads on there too but it's not enough to cover the whole thing and so you're still having to work with cold items with thin gloves at times you cuz with the big big mittens you just really could not run the camera and so you do have to pull those off get your shot shut up, shot set up you know Get the dexterity you need on your fingers to be able to adjust the camera, set it up, and then quickly slide those mitts back on so you don't freeze. And we've had to apply this on on several other shoots as well. We were in, uh, or I was in uh, Ecuador last year, documenting a climbing trip on Cotopaxi, which we're actually gonna be heading on again this year. So we'll be recording a, a podcast on location there in Ecuador when we're. Uh, Getting ready to climb up the mountain and talk with some of the uh, athletes as well as the people there about that whole experience. So we're looking forward to doing that again. But it's also it was not nearly as sub-zero temperatures as it was on this Muskox hunt. But it was still very cold. We were on the mountain. There was blowing snow. It was windy. It was cold. And so we'd have colder weather over gloves with thinner under ones to be able to work with the camera as well as get your hands warm when you needed to. So having the right gear makes or breaks a hunt, a hike, any type of outdoor adventure you're going to do you need to have the right gear, or you just got to be willing to suffer when you don't. I mean, you can get by for sure with lesser stuff and, and people do as well, but the, the easier you can make that job on you can help you to, you know, be able to capture the shots that you need to, because that's usually when the really epic or crazy shots happen is when you are out there, when the snow is blowing, when it's windy, when it's cold, and we got some really incredible shots when I was in uh, New Zealand this last year um, filming a tar hunt and the wind was blowing so bad. I mean, as I was hiking up this mountain, the, the wind was blowing my face. You know, the ice is frozen and crystallized on, the, on my beard and, and, you know, you're just, just cold and it's kind of miserable. And there's times when it's the last thing I want to do is pull out my camera and try to function and, and set the settings and then try to film when the snow is blowing all over. But that is when the really incredible epic stuff comes out. And it really did on this trip too. And that film is gonna be coming out uh, as well here later this fall. And so anyway, all that to say is, you know, you have to go through some stuff to get some really good shots. And, you know, it takes a little bit of extra, extra oomph, if you will to be able to capture those. So one of the other items that uh, we'll bring along on some of these hunts is a monopod. And this can be helpful when you are getting close in on an animal or even just trying to set up for a stable shot in between during a stock or at a different period of the day, you know, cause you're hiking around, your hands can get tired. You're carrying this camera. It's nice to pop out a monopod just to be able to film from and stabilize more shots. And on that same side, if we are able to, and we have the space when we're hiking around, we'll also bring along a gimbal. Now this is a motorized device that will basically stabilize the camera as you're walking around and doing movement with it. So it allows you to smoothen out when you're walking, tracking, following behind somebody, doing some really interesting movement shots, and that really smooths it out. So we use a DJI Ronin-S that can stabilize the A7R3 camera. And it's very simple to use, not as big as some of the other gimbal systems out there. And so it allows us to be able to really add some more dynamic feel to the shots that we're gonna get. Some of the other items that we're bringing along on the shoots are a slider, also known as more of a dolly in the world of, of cinema. And this allows you to basically do side to side sliding shots or movement shots from left to right, right to left. You can also do a punch in, um, push, pushing in or pulling back shots. And this is really good to add ins for uh, B-roll shots, but also to do some interesting time lapse where you can actually show some movement over time. So you can have it move just a slightly little bit every few seconds, few minutes over a longer period of time. So then it adds a really interesting feel when you have some clouds moving or following the stars. So you can mount everything from a small camera to a full-size camera on the slider as well. And the other items that you're usually carrying in my pack i mentioned earlier was having some filters. Now we have ND filters, some UV filters, some polarizing, circular polarizing filters, and these each do kind of their own thing the nd filters cutting down on light so you can shoot at a lower aperture when you're out in the middle of the day and to really help when it gets really bright so you don't have to go at a super high aperture and lose some of that cinematic feel of having that that really close shallow depth of field that nice blur on the edge of the frame and the items that are not in focus so Those are some of the items that we also bring, usually an extra case that just has chargers, battery strip, and because on this hunt that we're going to be basing out of uh, a hotel in Ely, Nevada, and basically driving out each day to the area because it's anywhere from a half hour to an hour or so to get to the area we're going to hunt in. And so it's not really far enough that we would have to set up a camp. So that being said, it allows us to also recharge all of the batteries every night, come back and offload all the footage, backing up photos onto multiple hard drives so everything is backed up and secure for the entirety of the trip and the hunt. And so sometimes we are based out in the middle of of the area that we're going to be hunting, such as the uh, muskox hunt that we were referring to earlier. We were based at a small little cabin that was out in the midst of the area we were going to be hunting and even from there the one day we actually had to still drive out almost four hours away to get to the area where the muskox were so it really just depends on where you're going to be at what the logistics are so we try to prepare for either side so if we're if we know we're going to be out more remote we'll bring along more battery backups charging systems whether it be solar charging or just a larger battery system that we can to run our equipment and to recharge our batteries for our cameras and phones and all that kind of stuff. So we really have to cater the trip that we're going to do based on those types of logistics. You know, what power is a big thing, and making sure that you can keep your cameras running every day that you're going to be out there. And because some of our trips end up being a couple of days long, sometimes we've out there nine, ten, fourteen days sometimes. So it really just depends, but Each day you're following a different plan because you kind of have a basic idea of where you're wanting to go, the type of shots you're wanting to get. But as the hunt unfolds, you're not sure how it's going to go. What's going to happen this day? Are you going to find an animal or maybe try a stock that doesn't work out or you you have some challenges that you encounter? It's much more going with the flow and documenting as you go along because you just you never know when action is going to happen when something inciting or interesting is going to take place so you have to be always willing to adjust to match so back talking about the muskox hunt up in Canada a few of the other things that were more unique to that trip again is batteries and keeping things charged up keeping things warm not just your hands but also the batteries that run the cameras because If you can't run your cameras, basically, you're not able to capture what is going on on the trip. I mean, that's one of the most important things to note when you are out there capturing. And so one of the things that we would do is have different zippered bags that were labeled with the different batteries. So we had GoPro batteries, we had the camera batteries for both different cameras, and we would put those into different pockets inside of the large parka that we would wear each day. And the closer that you can keep the batteries to your body heat and inside and not bringing them out until you actually need them, that allows you to have the batteries lasting as long as you possibly can. And then I also use a separate bag that is obviously marked as just a red bag, and it's basically for all of the dead batteries. So once I've cycled through all of the, the, the batteries that I've used in the camera and they've been fully discharged. They need to be charged up. So I put them in this separate bag. So as soon as I get back to wherever we're going to be charging from, whether that be back at the cabin or the hotel, or even just from a small battery bank or a solar powered system, um, you need to be able to keep track of what batteries are charged up, which ones need to be charged. And the same thing with the memory cards. And so when we get back, basically all the dead batteries go into that bag. I know what I need to grab, that I need. Okay, I'm going to take all these batteries and go charge them. They're ready for the next day. And also the cards. And we'll use marking tape, which is different colored gaff tape, to mark each camera and then which number of cards that that is. So as soon as the tape goes onto the card, that means it still has footage on it. It goes back into the case. We get back, take those out of the case, offload those, back them up, and then you know that as soon as the tape comes off of there, the card is ready to go, and you can go back into the camera and reformat. And so that is a very important item and very important part of any shoot, large or small, is the DIT. And so that person is basically handling all of that technical side of making sure everything is backed up, things are ready to go, and the media is where it needs to be. So. That's a very important thing to follow, even if you're going to be out in the bush or just the middle of of a remote place. And maybe you're not offloading the cards every night because you don't have a computer or those kinds of things, but at least you have them marked and even backed up. And some of these new cameras, they have the ability to write to two cards simultaneously. So then you end up with a backup, one on each card. So if something happens to one, you have the second one. So that's a really good feature to have if you have the card space to do so. And then you have a mark. So when you come back, you know which cards you have, which ones haven't been used, and you can keep track. So you know, okay, we started with number one, went to number two, and we know if something's missing or not. So those are some of the things that we would apply. Now, when being again in the cold weather, having to deal with batteries, you're trying to make them last as long as you can. And handheld hand warmers or even toe warmers are very important for cold weather, not just for your own fingers and toes to put in your mitts and to put in your boots, but also you can attach them to the camera in the area of where the battery would be. And this will help to heat up that space and keep it a little bit warmer and hopefully prolong the battery life just a little bit more, even if it helps just a little bit Every little bit adds up. And that's been really helpful just to be able to keep, you know, just a little bit extra warmth on those batteries on the cameras as we are using them out in the really cold weather. And now, not all of the trips that we do are gonna have such extreme settings. Like for this one, the temperatures are gonna be, you know, about in the 40s at night, 40s to 50s uh, over in Ely, Nevada, depending on where we end up. We may be hiking up into some of the mountains. Or getting up higher elevation, and so, but then during the day, you know, we're going to be averaging seventy, you know, eighty degrees or so potentially during the day, and so there's a, a large variety of of weather conditions that are going to be changing. But we also don't have to worry nearly as much about keeping things warm. So for this one, you know, batteries can stay in the backpack; they don't need to be in the pockets. But I do always keep at least one extra battery in my pocket ready to go because that's the worst thing to happen if your battery is going dead and you're sitting there just about to capture something that's very important. You don't want to be taking off your pack fumbling through there trying to find the cards or even finding the batteries that you need. So having that stuff right there readily accessible is very key. So on this muskox hunt a typical day would start off we would wake up check what the weather was doing The first few days, we actually didn't get to get out nearly as much because it was almost near whiteout conditions. The snow was blowing really hard and wind was blowing, and it was just really hard to see anything to go out and look for muskox. And so we actually ended up staying in a little bit more to start off with until we had good enough visibility. Because even if you get out into the area where you're going to be hunting, if you can't see anything and you can't glass, then it's almost pointless to go out and wander around in the fog. And the guys that we are with, the native guys that were basically our guides for the trip, um, the one guy, he had he'd grown up on the ice and knew exactly where to find the muskox, but as well as even tracking them and knowing where they're going. And they could literally tell the direction that they were ha- traveling or even just going on the ice in the snowmobile because of the drifts and because there's a predominant prevailing wind always going a certain direction and because of the way that the wind blew the drifts and you could feel that when you're driving along the ground you could tell which direction you were heading and then from there from the landmarks the different places where they were they had a gps but they pretty much never had to use it because it's only if they had a specific spot that they had to come back to they could use that to mark the spot but otherwise they pretty much would just roll based on what they knew and where they could find their way. So it was really amazing how skilled these guys were in taking us where we needed to go to find the muskox because you know we went out four or five hours along the trail and it took a long time to find the muskox. But once we got out there, we could get on them and we'd spot them from quite a ways in the distance and then moving in closer and finding out the hardest part was almost finding out which one to, to shoot and making sure that it was out of the herd of the rest of the animals because they tend to herd up and bunch up into an area and it's hard to take one specific animal out of that group. And so that was a challenge as well as, you know, again, making sure that the camera is ready to go. And in this case, since we weren't running with a backpack to hike around with the external clips, we ended up using uh, basically a chest uh pouch that you would put the camera into almost like a uh, like someone would call it a holster uh, but this one I would actually run on the chest and then it has a big enough zipper you could put the main camera inside there, zip it up, and it'd be padded, protected, and also easily accessible once you needed to take the camera out and to get those shots so you know getting in on the musk ox and getting those that footage taken. It was that setting up the tripod, making sure that the other camera was on the hunter as they're getting ready to set up and then it's waiting and waiting and waiting until that animal presents the right the right spot and making sure it's a safe, clean kill. And really the rest of that was having to butcher this animal to take the meat and process all of that and get it ready to for the long drive back to the cabin after that. So it was pretty exciting to finally to get that accomplished. But even from there, we were so far out in the middle of the tundra. We still had to go all the way back the three plus hours back to our small cabin. Um, and then the next day, making sure that the weather was good enough to get all the way back into town. And so we were able to change our flight to get back early. And all the while, you know, making sure we get enough footage for the whole, uh, hunt that needs to be put together. Now this would be one of the episodes for season five that's going to be coming up. So, you know, when you're out there, again, you're you're rolling with the punches every day to see how things go, but you're also double checking to make sure you have enough content and things to pull from when you need it for putting together into a full episode. Because being that it's a twenty plus minutes, it takes more footage and more time. Than a typical video that we end up doing that might be five or even 10 minutes long, you start increasing that video length, you have to make sure you have enough footage to support that. And so that's always in the back of our minds when we're going on these locations and these shoots. And, and, and that honestly, that was a definitely a, a difficult one to film with just all of the, uh, not only the difficult logistics that would take place, uh, but also, just the adverse weather conditions that we had to put up with and the cold temperatures and thankfully, the little cabin that we had had a small fire in there inside of a wood stove, so it was able to heat the small building that we were staying in and so that type of that part of the uh, the process was actually quite comfortable and was not you know too difficult until you needed to go out and use the restroom and the wind's blowing and the snow and everywhere and it's Below zero outside, so there's definitely some some things that we had to take into consideration there, and and uh, some of the other B-roll shots that we ended up getting on that shoe was a couple of uh, time lapses, and those were done with using the slider, which we this was with the uh, Rhino ROV slider, and this one we could set up and set a time, control it, you actually control it with your phone, and then control how many times the interval is going to be for the photos how many photos per minute or per hour and then assembling all of those final photos into frames of video to make the full time lapse so we're able to get some some really cool time lapses with that also we use utilizing the gopro to set up inside to show the passing of time since we got weathered in and had to stay in the cabin for a while so there's definitely downtime and those are the times that I usually take to uh, taking notes and journaling notes from the whole trip in itself because we try to keep track of everything that happens every single day so when we get back into the editing stage, we can go back and refer to those notes and know, okay, on this day, this took place, these are the animals we are seeing, these are the types of the cameras we were shooting with, and all of those notes really help for post-production process because... Not all the stuff is planned out beforehand. So the more detailed you can be in your production stage, the better it's going to be in your post-production for sure. And that applies to pretty much every shoot across the board. Like you really want to put in that time. And if you don't have it in pre-production, put in the time in production in that stage and take notes on what you shoot and when you shoot. i even sometimes write down the times, you know, the timestamp of, when those those specific shots took place that i really you know want to make sure i look for and then if i have the computer with me to offload the footage i'll go through and usually highlight color a couple of the of the shots that were really important to make sure okay focus in on these when you're doing the edit and for myself to remember what to pull from on the along the way as well so so that's usually the steps that i'm taking towards the end of that project either sometimes it's along the way along the process during the trip or it might be on the travel back if there's a lot of travel going back from a, a trip like coming back from Canada it was actually a lot of hours spent in flights and airports and so a lot of it was going back and recapping any of the details that I wanted to remember from the trip and make sure those notes were detailed to go into the editing and post-production stage and make that a lot smoother and a lot easier. So obviously, even though you can get caught up into the trip or the hunt or the film or whatever you might be capturing, make sure you take the time to take those notes along the way it's gonna make your life a lot easier on the back end. And so now there's a lot more things that go into the different types of shoots that we do. That was a little bit more details on What we do on a Prime Revolution filming side of things, and more specifically on this muskox trip up in northern Canada. But we're going to be doing this a lot more in the coming episodes, talking with myself and Josiah, talking with the different clients that we work with on shoots, because we really want to give you guys and gals an inside look into what we do on a day to day basis or just on a a trip basis, because we're going all these different places and each shoot is very different and unique the type of people that are on set, the camera gear and the equipment that is used. So not to get overly exaggerated on the nerdy side of, of cameras so much, but we really want to just share kind of the, uh, the inside look into what it takes to put on some of these productions that we're doing. So I hope you enjoyed this inside look into Muskox Hunt and Prime Re- Revolution Filming for these hunting trips and uh, we'll catch you again on the next time when we go behind the frame, not just with other people, but with Silverline as well. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you're able to glean some valuable insights from this episode. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and let us know what you thought and your feedback. We would love to hear from you. If you want to find out more, visit silverlinefilm.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook under Silverline Films. And we look forward to seeing you next week on Silverline Behind the Frame.